it's the cup of mets podcast season two episode 18 and we've got a special one in store for you guys ian bosniak joined alongside by robert benegas as always robbie number 18 how we doing yes sir number 18 daryl strawberry special is an understatement Ian. you know we got honestly one of the first baseball players i remember you know growing up as a young met fan um it's gonna be a good one today yes sir yes sir and that and that player that Rob looked up to when he was younger was uh, Mr. Todd Zeal and Todd Zeal, 16 year uh, MLB veteran and current pre and post game SNY analyst uh, will join us in a few. Um, but before we get going with Todd, uh, with our takes on what was a wild trade deadline, uh, remember to give us a follow on Instagram, on Twitter and on YouTube. We are at Cup of Mets. Also, be sure to subscribe and rate to our podcast, whether it be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Guys, with that being said, we hope you enjoy the interview with Todd Zeal and uh, feel a little bit more confident in the way that the uh, Mets direction is headed. Enjoy. All righty, guys. So we are uh, joined today by uh, 16-year MLB veteran and current SNY Mets analyst, Todd Zeal. Todd, thanks for uh, joining the uh, Couple Mets podcast. My pleasure. Good to have you guys, uh, you know, here in the, uh, in the city, in my, in my living room, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, beautiful sir. View. It's a yeah. beautiful view. Gorgeous view. Yeah. Wow. That's unreal. Um, yeah. So it, it's been a wild, it's been a wild last couple of days in Mets land. Um, we're just going to hop straight into it. Um, sometimes I, I like to play a little GM. Um, so we're going to go a little reverse. I saw all this coming um, <laughs> in the off season. I, Nothing against Justin Verlander, um, but I think wiser investments should have been made um, in the offseason. Um, I'm not sure if you agree with this sentiment, but the $43 million that was allocated to Justin Verlander, I felt like could have been spread out to another starter, potentially a right-handed bat and Justin Turner or a J.D. Martinez. Um and then obviously they tried to fill DeGrom, Bassett, and Walker with Quintana and Senga. And then with Verlander, I feel like they tried to replicate 2022 without filling in those gaps that we saw towards the end of 2022 with some of the pitching, some of the lack of hitting with runners in scoring position. Um, you know, they knew that they needed a DH. They didn't address that. I just feel like um, we're all seeing it kind of come into play now. I'm not sure if you agree with that. Yeah, I know. I think there's some validity to what you have to say. However, I do think that there's a couple of, um, you know, other issues. And obviously hindsight is uh, always 2020 or at least a little more clear. Um, but I think the reality is um, when Steve and Alex Cohen took over this team, um, there was an immediate expectation to find a way to win. And I think that um, that comes with a couple of, um, you know, things that, uh, can add uh, a bit of urgency. I mean, not only did people want to win, but they wanted to win now. And they, they thought it was as easy as being able to kind of put puzzle pieces on a table. And when you have an unlimited budget, which essentially they have, um, it seems like all those pieces are going to be easy to find and slot together. And I think as um, I, I've been very impressed with his commentary, I think he's been a very patient owner considering the 377 million um, spent. And I think his approach that is, you know, to be the anti Steinbrenner in a sense mm -hmm. um, to say, 
hey, we still have a philosophy. We still have resources. We still have um, a desire to win, but I'm not going to be hasty and make firings to have firings to show my displeasure for the season, but make no um, bones about it. This has been um, a disappointing season. It's not the way uh, they wanted things to come together. And I think at the end of the day, some of the reasons behind some of the, men, the things that you mentioned, like a Verlander signing was he was the top free agent pitcher on the market, having just won a Cy Young award, Jacob deGrom um, deciding to go somewhere else. I think put a lot of pressure on the organization to fill that spot with a marquee name. And I don't think there was anybody else that would be able to fill that, that spot. And he was at least theoretically, um, pitching as well as he had in, you know, recent memory. Um, I think some of the other reasons that they didn't go out and um, really add a lot of extra layers on the offensive side is that um, I think they were convinced that the team they saw in 2022 and that ability to drive in runs, that ability to manufacture runs, have long at bats, be pesky, take advantage of opposition mistakes, all of those things were the true characteristics of this team and not um, an anomaly of 2022. And I think what we're seeing now as people that watch it every day, as you guys do, as I do, I think there's a question as to whether or not this 2023 team is the team that is the real, um, you know, kind of the real slim shady please stand up is, which team is the real Slim Shady? Is it the 2022 team that, um, you know, has the long at bats and grinds um, through, takes advantages of mistakes, gets, uh, you know, big hits with men in scoring position, or is it more sort of the feast or famine team that you've seen this year? And I think that goes into the overall analysis of why they're making moves right now, because I don't think anybody's convinced um, of that answer in totality. And so, um, I think, unfortunately, what seems to be a rebuilding is probably less of a fire sale because it's New York. You can never have a fire sale in New York on either side of town. You can never have, have sustained losing, but I think they're going to have to bite the bullet a little bit and build a winning organization and not try to build a winning team. And I think that is something that is going to be tough on the patience of some Mets fans, but I think in the long run is going to be what this organization needs to sustain a winning tradition for years to come and not just potentially have, you know, an opportunity to be in the playoffs once every handful of years. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad that you said that hindsight's 2020 because uh, Rob reminds me probably weekly um, <laughs> because I, I've just been bringing this up since the winter, yeah. but like you said, you said sustain, you know, long-term success. So, you know, do you agree with, you know, again, the Mets strategy that they did throughout the deadline? Do you agree with most of the moves that they made or? I think, you know what, it, it's hard to know exactly what determines some of the moves, but the reality is David Robertson was probably the most um, viable target on the market. He's a guy that, you know, if you're kind of punting this season, which Clearly, you know, the Mets at, you know, when they're playing against the Nationals could say, hey, we could get on a big run here and win 10 out of our next 12 and be right back in the wild card hunt. But the reality is six or seven games is 
one thing, five or six teams in front of you is a totally different thing, especially when a couple of them are in your division and teams you're going to have to play. So, and there had never been any stretch of time during the season up to this point where you could say, wow, this is that team that I think we saw and we're going to continue to see that gives you confidence that that kind of winning streak could be sustained or that this was the team that was going to be able to make that late run. So you've got to make tough decisions at the trade deadline. If you're Billy Epler and Steve Cohen um, and say, Hey, we, we are going to um, sacrifice this season and get the best value for our organization out of the pieces that we have left. And as soon as David Robertson went and you saw the kind of return that they could get for him, young, these are three or four years out of being able to be an impact players at the big league level, then I think you saw the domino dominoes were set up to start to fall the way they did. And, yeah. you know, Max's post game um, interview after his last start was as telling as anything. I want to talk to the brass. And what he was really saying is this David Robertson trade makes me feel like you're punting on this year. And maybe next year, if that's the case, you might as well get what you can out of me because I don't want to stay around here to lose um, in my last year of my deal. And then that led to Justin. And you always kind of knew that Canna and Fam were on the radar uh, yeah. for trades. Leon um, came sort of un as a surprise, but the rest of it was not that surprising once you saw the David Robertson trade because that just internally said, hey, we're not looking to 2023 anymore. We're going to look to 2024 to be competitive, but maybe not uh, be World Series contenders. And we're going to build so we can sustain a winning culture and a winning organization for years to come. Yeah, and I, and I think you said it best. You know, this year we haven't really seen, aside from the six-game winning streak uh, before the deadline, uh, we haven't really seen that consistency throughout the whole year like we did in 2022. And like I said, aside from the six-game winning streak uh, a couple weeks before the deadline. But, but yeah, no, you hit it on and, the head. And, and I think if that winning streak had come against um, different competition potentially, uh -huh. it might have given a different note and not to take anything – away from the teams that they'd been playing. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, there there was at least not this great feeling that, um, you know, hey, they're turning it around and this is, um, you know, just been a bad first half and we're going to really have a great second half. I think there seemed to be um, systematic failures that needed to kind of be addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is just a kind of a follow-up question. I mean, you mentioned Scherzer, um, you know, in that press conference, Rob and I were talking about this, you know, the other day and even just before we hopped on, I almost felt as if, um, obviously if you can get the most bang for your buck, he's got an option next year. You pulled the trigger if you can get Luis on Hello Cunha. Right. But I almost felt like, and he did say that he is, you know, he was a contributing factor to the Mets first half failures. And, um, but I found it, I'm not a Mets fan that gets all, you know, uh, I'm done with this player because he said X, Y, and Z, but I almost found it like two totally different press conferences, two totally different locker room uh, post games between Scherzer and Verlander. It was like, you know, does Scherzer recognize that he really contributed to where the Mets are? I mean, to me, he was either excellent. He was either only okay. And then he was all also just like downright bad this year. And I felt like, he didn't have much, 
I just felt like it was a bad look maybe for him to have that type of standing on the organization after he pitched well in his first start in like several, several starts. Yeah, no, I think, I think the point you're making is the tone of, of that seemed to be as if he'd been misled or something when the reality is they were in this position, six or seven games under 500 at the trade deadline by all of their own doing. And he was as much of a contributor to that as anybody else. I think Verlander's um, presser had a little bit of a different tone because A, he had just won his 250th game. Um, I think he was being a little bit more diplomatic um, and wanted to get sort of the clarity as to why Max and Robertson had both, um, you know, been traded and why, you know, Max was willing to lift the no trade clause. Um, but the very end of his press conference gave me the sense that this is done. He's going. If they can find a suitor for him, he's gone because he did say that Max changed his opinion on the things moving forward. Um, Robertson is something that you could kind of um, justify. Edwin Diaz is going to be back next year. You've got the back of the bullpen guy that you want. You could potentially go out and re-sign him as soon as this offseason uh, becomes, uh, you know, uh, a part of the free agent market. So that one you could make some sense of. The Max one seemed to say Max knows that they're not trying to win next year, and then that, you know, tips the the hand for for Justin. But I just think he was being a little more diplomatic. But yeah. I think at that point he recognized that um, he should have nothing but appreciation for this organization. I mean, he came out here as the guy to kind of be the ace of this staff with Max um, by no real doing of his own, couldn't get out of the gate because of the injury, finally started pitching well, but you were talking about, you know, the end of July and the 1st of August, and he's had five good starts in a row, not 15, right? Not 15 out of 17. So he recognized, I think, personally, He's been around this game long enough um, to know, A, how to play the game and, and B, you know, smart enough uh, with the press. And I think he's a little bit more, um, uh, I, I think he's a little bit more contained than Max. Max just lets it fly. Whatever comes yeah. out of his mouth and there's something that you have to love about him, me personally, at least, I loved that aspect of him. Um, and you know, with, um, with somebody like Justin, who's been around and has had some controversial things over the course of his career, I think he's just a little bit more polished in, in that, um, you know, media one one Yeah. Yeah. No, I just found it funny that Scherzer's presser came after Robertson. I mean, Scherzer's a smart guy. You got to recognize that you're not going to win this year. Robertson's going to be a free agent. So you're going to try to get the most bang for your buck. Um, from, I think look, look, if, if and I was even saying this as, hey, if you want to be the eternal optimist right here, you could say David Robertson was an opportunistic trade to get some young guys to start bolstering the farm system. They know they're not going to win this year, but maybe they talked to David and said, hey, David, I know you liked it here. You want to sign back with us? We'll sign you the day this offseason comes. Then they'll have an eighth inning guy and Edwin Diaz next year. They mm-hmm. keep the rest of the team intact. And they, you know, kind of limp to the finish line this season and have this kind of rejuvenated opportunity next year. But I think internally, there was so many other questions as we addressed at the very beginning of this, that they didn't think that just 
surplanting this team into next season was enough to get over the the issues that they've already seen uh, come to fruition this year. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, and you know, from those players that, that were dealt to one that wasn't dealt, but nearly was dealt, uh, apparently Pete Alonzo, um, you know, there were rumors that he was on the trade block for a little more than a week. And it was only up until midday on uh, Thursday that they recognized they weren't going to trade him. Um, how do you see that playing out? I know that Epler and uh, the agent are going to sit down and talk um, at some point, but do you see a, you see a trade on the horizon or do you see a, an extension? That one, I really don't know. I mm-hmm. think that, um, I think that Pete maybe um, felt a little slighted coming into this season that they're talking about, you know, big signings elsewhere and maybe McNeil gets an extension and, and that wasn't really a part of the discussion with him, but I also think that, um, you know, we, we, we talked about this a lot in spring training and even um, before that, that a Pete type of extension is going to be a very different animal than, say, a McNeil extension at the time. Um, he's proven to be one of the most prolific home run hitters in all of baseball. Um, you know that whomever is representing him at this point in his career is going to Um, be very adamant about the fact that that free agent market is going to see a lot of activity for him um, when, when it's his time to come out. So, um, you know, so maybe there's some thought internally that it's not going to be an easy thing to do to get him um, locked up here long-term. And that if the, the sort of um, rebuild, if you will, or the, the, at least um, the sort of the retraction was underway. Um, there could be a lot of value generated from somebody like Pete. Um, but obviously Billy did in his uh, press conference say that the bar is going to be set very high. The value that they're putting on the guys that they're trying to trade um, is going to be very high. They're not fire sailing by any stretch of the imagination. This is not a salary dump by any means. This is a way to get the organization better. And so he has no pressure to make a trade. And so if there is going to be something for a guy like Pete, it would have to overwhelm him and be something that he could see having really great value in the near term. And that apparently just wasn't the case. Absolutely. No. Yeah. And again, with that being said, um, I just want your opinion on, on next year and how competitive you think the Mets are going to be in 2024. Well, look, I think that, this is a different organization than it was for a number of years. And it's to take nothing away from the will ponds. They did what they could with the means that they had, but there is a different sensibility here that they're never going to sustain losing and accept losing. So I think they're going to do as much as they can to try to bolster that organizational um, piece, the farm system, get the prospects as they've been doing, um, they're probably going to draft a little higher than they would normally um, mm-hmm. draft because of the, the situation as this year has turned out. Um, but I think that they're going to be active in the free agent market still. They're still going to um, plug holes. And I don't think it's going to be with, you know, just anybody that can plug a hole. Um, I think they're going to still try to put together a team that is going to be um, competitive. And I do think that, the right thing to do. And I think that this is part of what they would be intending to do is 
get these young guys, the baby Mets, if you will, Mm -hmm. more experienced at the big league level so that they're ready to contribute consistently over the course of a season and not just see flashes of what they could potentially do. No, yeah, definitely. And again, you know, guys like, I mean, I'm a big baby Mets fan. I I want the Mets to call up Mauricio to end the season. And then hopefully, you know, in 2024, he's with the big league club. But, you know, even a guy like Luis Angel Acuna that we got from Scherzer, he's expected to be ready sometime next year. And then again, you, you, you talk about the starting pitching market or just the market in general. I'm, I'm looking at the starting pitching market. I like guys like Aaron Nola, Julio Urias. I mean, those are the two sexy names that I see. I mean, even a guy like Lucas Giolito or, or maybe even Blake Snell or Michael Lorenzen. Like, you know, again, those, those are names that I would consider in terms of starting pitching. Um, I guess here you look at Senga, Quintana, and then, and then after them, it's Peterson McGill. It's like, you know, uh, we definitely have to dip into the starting pitching market, but but I'm excited for the young talent along with the moves that they make in terms of free agency next year. And, and, you know, again, hopefully we're just competitive in 2024. So. Yeah, I think I look, I, what do I know except what I'm analyzing along with you guys yeah. at this point, but um, you know, I expect them to find ways to be competitive. I think this is also a little fire um, lit under the guys that have underperformed this year. There's a, there's a bunch of guys that haven't lived up to the back of their baseball card this season and i can tell you over 16 years there are years that when i played there's there's years that you just don't have that kind of same quality year there's years where you feel better or or injuries take a a part or you're just in a funk at more than other uh, Mm -hmm. other years and um but you know what you're expecting and what the analytics say and what a guy like billy epler is trying to you know um analyze to build the team is um, okay. We've seen this guy enough to know that we believe this track record is going to be what we see over the sustained period. So this is a you know a dip on the uh, on the bar graph, and we're going to see that you know some of that productivity come back up to where we expect it to in the coming seasons. And I think um, some of that analysis um, has to be done with this team as they go into this off season, as for the remainder of this season, even see how guys play with a little adversity and without expectations being so high, um, how they motivate themselves um, on a daily basis to go out there and, and, you know, play an individual game for a team. It's a little bit different uh, when, you know, you got guys pulling from sort of different ends of the rope. Um, So I think all of those things, all of those assessments are still open to be made uh, in the last 55 games of this season. Yeah. Yeah, and I find it funny. I saw a report that the Mets are going to have interest in Julio Urias. Yet when I look at some of the free agents starting pitching, I think of a guy like, like you know, um, as you, uh, Rob, you said Lucas Giolito, someone like James Paxton, who's had a bounce back season for Boston, the guys that aren't going to have the qualifying offers um, attached to them so that the Mets can continue to bolster their farm system, not lose draft picks um, and the whole nine. That's kind of the territory that I think that they're going to be in. Todd, we normally wrap up our interviews with five rapid fire questions. Um, if you're ready and willing, <laughs> go ahead and do it. I, I who knows what the, uh, the five quick answers will be, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They get short or as long as you want to make them. Um, uh, as you're rising through the ranks as a player yourself, is there a particular player or manager that had the biggest impact or influence on you in your career? Yeah, um, that one's an easy one. Joe Torrey, I think, because Joe, uh, I mean, Whitey Herzog was a great first manager for me in St. Louis. 
um, and he decided to retire or uh, resign from those duties during my uh, rookie season. Joe Torre came in, and quite honestly, Joe Torre and I locked horns early on because um, he was kind of uh, the front piece that the organization put to make me um, change from catcher to infield, and I wanted to stay a catcher, but we ended up bonding over that experience and having great respect, and um, he's a, a great, great friend and like a, a mentor, uh, father figure for me uh, to this day. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Now, again, you know, you had a long career in the major leagues, but my my first rapid question is, who was the toughest pitcher you ever faced and why? You know, you would think that I would have an easy pat answer to that. People yeah. ask me, and I always think, um, you know, there were a lot of really great pitchers. I think um, Pedro Martinez was probably as tough on me as anybody and um, mm -hmm. was really tough at bat. Um, guys that probably got me out, but I didn't really mind facing guys like Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling. I liked at bats against them, even though I don't know what my numbers would have shown. But I think sort of consistently for a long, long time, um, Maddox was frustrating as anything. And Smoltz just had tremendous stuff. You know, he just knew how to get you out. He had um, four great pitches and, um, you know, was one of those guys that could be one of the best starters in the game and then, you know, move to the bullpen and be the best closer in the game. So yeah. uh, I think it just tells, you know, what it was like to, to go against him. Yeah. And that was, that was one of my guesses when, before we came on here today that you were going to say Greg Maddox. So, you know, yeah, yeah I mean, one. I love one one. <laughs> Maddox because um, he's just such a bulldog and so competitive and, yeah. you know, it's kind of a comfortable at bat. It's not like a guy throwing a hundred that you got to worry about getting drilled. He just, he never missed his location and he was mm -hmm. so competitive and so good. His ball moved all over the place. And um, next thing you knew, uh, you know, you're comfortable 0 for 3 and looking at, you know, an 85 pitch complete game, you know, uh, shutout that he was throwing again. So he was yeah. just uh, one of a kind. Yeah. Was Tommy, was Tommy Glavin a little bit easier to hit or? Well, for me, because left-handed, I stood right on top of home plate. Uh -huh. So I didn't chase that change up off the plate as well. And yeah. I think, you know, he and I are friends and, um, you know, have a funny, uh, you know, end to my career. I got to catch him in my last game as a Met and in my last game in the big leagues. And it, I wanted to go out the way I came in. And so in order to do that, the manager said, Hey, you gotta, you gotta, you know, go get the approval from Glav because he's going to be going that final game. And, um, so that was a great thrill for me to catch him, but, um, you know, I've let him know over the years that I had pretty good success against him. I think I'm, I, I think that's one that if you look up, that's a hall of famer that I, uh, that I had some numbers against. We'll dig into that. Yeah. And speaking of that last game, I was actually there, Todd, as a, uh, <laughs> as a, as a nine-year-old. So I saw your, uh, final home run. It was, uh, nice. it, it was pretty incredible. Um, what was your favorite moment from the 2000, uh, season? The 2000 season. You know, selfishly for me, if I was just thinking about myself in this, um, in, in that was really the NL championship um, against the Cardinals. There, there was a lot of um, sort of internal want uh, for me to get past the Cardinals and get to the World Series, obviously for our Mets team, but also because that was my first organization. They traded me at a time I didn't necessarily want to be traded. And so I always kind of, you know, like guys do, you always kind of dream of getting some sort of revenge on the field. And, um, you know, that, that uh, final game of that NLCS 
I had the opportunity to hit with the bases loaded and hit a ball off the wall and drove in three runs and the stadium was rocking and the ground was literally shaking <laughs> at second base. And that to me was probably the most memorable moment um, between the lines for me. Uh, and that happened to be, you know, sort of the, the nail in the coffin for the Cardinals in our, in our sort of send off to the world series. Yeah. When Shea would rock, there'd be nothing like it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Nothing. Now, no, definitely. Now um, we're going to, you know, turn back to the current team. So which current Met has to have, has to kind of have to turn it around for 2024 to be successful? Um, well, I think there's got to be more consistency out of a couple of guys. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that it sits on one guy. I think that's the thing um, that can be troubling. Like Pete, um, you know, hits home runs and drives in runs and he's very, very streaky lately, but I think it was expected that he, um, was a guy that would hit 260, 270 as well, be more judge-like than he's been. Um, and he showed signs of that early, using the opposite field, taking the single to drive in a run, um, which makes him a more threatening hitter than just being a home run guy. Um, and I think, you know, the two key guys in that lineup are Lindor and Pete back-to-back. -back. Lindor, if you look at his numbers and you line them up, his numbers overall on the season, uh, there's nothing that you can say that would say that it's not a great season. He's mm -hmm. at the top of the ranks in shortstops, uh, you know, in a lot of offensive categories. Um, but I think he would even say that it hasn't been consistent in the way that he wants it to be. Um, and those two guys back to back are a huge key. But, you know, you had trouble with Marte was, um, I think, a real dis appointment this season being injured at times not really clicking in that two hole um it just left more vulnerability to pitch around francisco and um alonzo uh to get to you know that sort of second half of the lineup which was um struggling for you know a, a good part of the early season sure yeah no sure. and 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 again, yeah, I agree with with Marte, you know, especially comparing him to last year. Big, big, big difference. Obviously, the injury didn't help. And then even a guy like Jeff McNeil, you know, coming off a batting title. Yeah, I mean, I think extension. I think it's been, yeah. you know, it's been a frustrating year for Jeff. And, yeah. you know, if you it's kind of like one of those things now where when I was playing, if you're hitting 250, you're hitting 250. And you, if it's below your um, career average, then look, you're having a down year. Now, the analytics look into so many different things hard hit rate and barrel percentage and, you know, Babbitt and all the other uh -huh. things that say, well, yeah. I'm actually having good at bass, but not getting success. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, he would tell you, I would tell you, and Billy Epler would tell you, and Steve Cohen would tell you, this is a results driven business at the end of the day. And everybody can try. Um, it's a matter of trying and finding ways to have success that separates you from everybody else. So um, I think there is, you know, that level of consistency that just hasn't been there for some of these guys next year that, you know, will probably love to have a fresh start and go at it um, with a, a little bit different mindset going into 2024. You mentioned, you mentioned Babbitt and it's funny because Pete Alonso has a 195 uh, batting average with ball put in play. So that's a kind of a telltale sign, I think, in terms mm -hmm. of looking at his season. Um, final question here. And then I do have one impromptu because we, uh, found out just before the show. Um, but uh, my last question, rapid fire is, uh, do you think that Buck Showalter will be the manager in 2024? I do. Yeah, I think he will. I don't think there's anything that really rests on Buck's shoulders. I think that 
Um, he, you know, was trying to manage a group that was a little bit different um, from the out from the outset this year. Mm -hmm. There was not the same kind. I mean, we've heard Steve Gelbs talk about it, and even some of the other guys that analyze it on a daily basis talk about the fact that it just felt different on the field in the clubhouse. Um, but look, Buck is as good a strategic manager and manager as there is. He's a guy that's been very adept at managing veterans and He's also a guy that comes from the old school. And I think there's some of that that's needed in teaching some of the young, young guys. And so I think you might get a better result out of having some of these baby Mets, um, you know, learn from a guy like Showalter at the helm than maybe a younger, more analytically driven, um, you know, kind of young players manager. I think that that sometimes does a disservice to some of these young guys who are still kind of learning the game. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. Rob, do you want to uh, bring up the, well, actually, you know, Todd, we, 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 we were looking at your baseball reference beforehand uh -oh. and, and before, and, and before we <laughs> let you go, we just, we saw that you were traded three times in 1998. What was, what was that like? I mean, that's, I mean, conveniently so trade deadline just came and went. There's so many factors that go into that with, you know, your family, your person, I mean, just everything yeah. in general, what was that like? Well, you know what? That was the one time. I mean, I played with 11 teams. Obviously, I was well-traveled, and some of them were trades at the deadline where I was a guy like Canna or Pham or, or, or Robertson going to a contender and hoping to be a guy that helps push them across. But the 98 one was a different one because I signed a long-term deal with the um, Dodgers. It was a place I had grown up, um, you know, and I wanted to sign there. I signed a deal that was very modest comparatively to what um, was out there on the open market for me, but it was because I wanted to play in LA and I had a very, very good season, hit 30 home runs in 97. I was off to a great start in 98. And at the end of the day, I got traded because Fox and Mike Piazza couldn't come to a, uh, an agreement. I was a part of the Piazza deal and the Marlins really leveraged um, what, you know, kind of strength they had at that time knowing that the Dodgers were ready to, to let Mike go. And, um, you know, they added me and made me a piece of that deal so that they could dump some other salary and shift some guys off to the Dodgers. So um, I knew that trade was a trade to then be traded again. So um, not a surprise that um, I was then traded to Texas um, a month and a half later. Um, and that, you know, quite honestly, ended up being a great trade for me the Marlins um, Jim Leland was um, the best. He couldn't have been um, more gracious. And um, you know, I think just one of those gritty old school managers that you have to love playing for. And he, even the short time I was there, I learned a lot from him. And then, um, but he always said, Hey, you're here to get traded again. Um, and you know, I I'm, I'm sorry that this is the situation, but we'll get you somewhere where you can thrive. And, you know, Texas was a great, great spot spot for me. Um, and then that, you know, the other trade that came out of that was coming to the Mets. And that was really because the 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 Rangers, after my 99 season, took some moves sort of like the Mets are doing now and started to let guys go and looked like it was going to be a rebuild uh, for a little time. And um, I saw the Mets go in the other direction and they came at me very aggressively. And I said, hey, if I'm, if I want to be, you know, in contention, then the Mets is where to go. And there's no better place to play for a winner than New York. And, and here we are, you know, all my 
my life changed. So all of those trades, I think, you know, had some, you know, moments that were challenging that you get kind of thrown into a different situation. You have to adapt family issues, as you mentioned, are always um, a consideration. But at the end of the day, the experiences were all something that I look back on now and say, wow, I, I don't know if I would be right here right now, had it not been for all those moves. Absolutely. No, that's great insight from somebody who's been through it. Rob, you got anything else for Todd? No, nah, no, nah, we're all good here. And I just want to say thank you from coming from me and, you know, obviously Ian, uh, we appreciate your time and, and thanks again, Todd, seriously. My pleasure guys. Yeah. Todd, thank you very much. And, uh, let's hope, you know, the next time we chat, things are a little bit more positive. Yeah, we'll and, be looking uh, up, right? We'll see yeah, how, yeah. <laughs> how all of our, uh, our, our playing GM is done, right? We can, <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Hopefully the winner, um, the winner goes Tough and job. that's why, yeah, that, that it is, that it is Todd. We really appreciate you hopping on for a few, um, really great listening from you. Uh, nice to see you. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks guys. Good to see you. Thank you. Take care. Take care.